to the Chairman and our dear brethren and sisters and our Lord Jesus Christ and our dear young people. We would like to say a few more things about Numbers chapter 5 and we want to consider that in the context of what we have been talking about, things about which James has instructed us. And as we are reminded, we are reminded all the time that the theme of James is really faith without works is dead. And in James chapter 2, James likens faith and works as twins. And he says they are fellows. That's the kind of words he uses to describe faith and works. That they work together. And that therefore, brethren and sisters, if there is works without faith, the works have to be dead. But can there be faith without works? There can't be. Because faith everywhere in the Bible, brethren and sisters, is a verb. Now, I need to rephrase that because it's not everywhere that faith is used as a verb. Because faith is a noun as well. But faith, when it is talking about the things that James is talking about, is a verb, it's an active word, it's a doing word. And so you can't have faith without works. If there is such a thing academically, really the faith only amounts to knowledge. It's not faith. It's not the substance of things hoped for, it's not the evidence of things unseen. And what are those unseen things that make knowledge into faith? Well, brethren and sisters, they are two things. And those two things are the Father and the Son. And without knowing the Father and the Son by faith, because we can't see either of them, if we don't know the Father and the Son, we will not attain to everlasting life. And so, brothers and sisters, those great and those wonderful, those glorious unseen things have got to accompany us every day. And the Apostle Paul tells us that in, in Hebrews chapter 11, doesn't he? He says that Moses endured, not because he could see the kingdom of God, but because he could see him who is invisible. And he took him everywhere he went. And it was the noble character of Moses, brethren and sisters, that wherever he went, he followed Yahweh. And it was the noble characteristics of Caleb and Joshua, wasn't it, that wherever they went, they wholly followed Yahweh. They saw Yahweh out in front of them, they knew him, they knew his business, they knew his character, and they were therefore prepared to follow in the steps that, in which he led them. And that's really what faith is, brethren and sisters. Remember what the Lord Jesus Christ says in, in Luke chapter 18, When the Son of Man cometh, will he find... And what does he say? He doesn't say, will he find the faith in the earth. Brethren and sisters, there'll be heaps of us who give our assent to the statement of faith. 
There'll be heaps of us who say, yes, we understand, the Bible is infallible. The Bible is the inspired word of God. But where will faith be? Have we got the faith in those two illustrious and glorious beings that following them will take us into the kingdom of God? Have we got that faith? Does it clothe those beings with reality so that we are enabled to follow with them in the paths that they have led so that we will follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth? And every time, brethren and sisters, that we don't, the jealousy of Christ and of his Father are aroused. And we want to see that now by turning back just in our minds, first of all, to the 20th chapter of Exodus. Because in Exodus chapter 20, we first read about Yahweh being a jealous ale, a jealous power, one who has got the very best intentions for all of those who are prepared to trust him in faith and in all their ways to trust him and to follow him and lean not upon their own understanding. And the first commandment is, thou shalt have no other gods. And the Apostle Paul says, covetousness is idolatry. Can you see covetousness, brethren and sisters? Can you see it? Is it tangible? You may be able to see the outworking of it, but can you see it? It's a secret working in the members that arouses the jealousy of Yahweh. And what is the tenth commandment? Thou shalt not covet. The whole of the Ten Commandments, brethren and sisters, are aimed at one thing. And it starts with it and it finishes with it. Thou shalt not covet. No wonder, brethren and sisters, Yahweh wants to bring us to check out as to whether we've got secret sin or not. And so when he brought that woman who really was the nation of Israel into the precincts of the holy place of the tabernacle and there stripped her of all her covering robes and put in her hand a meal offering and then said to her, Say Amen and Amen to this. Brothers and sisters, when we get to the judgment seat of Christ, are we going to be a guilty, bold pretender Or are we going to be somebody who, although we may be innocent of great crime, are nonetheless still brought to that situation and we still don't get off scot-free? Because that woman, brothers and sisters, even if she was innocent of the crime, she still bore her iniquity. And the husband did not bear any iniquity because he represents Yahweh and because we cannot afford to have the slightest sniff of infidelity against him. But with infidelity with us, brothers and sisters, it's every day, isn't it? And it helps us to get God's view of sin. 
because he now in that chapter wants to expose to us the very things that we want to hide from everybody else and the very things, brothers and sisters, that even we want to clothe with the deception of sin that is within us and we don't want to own up to it. And if we don't want to own up to it now, brothers and sisters, it'll be too late when the judge of all the earth comes. I know, brothers and sisters, you are saying we don't even know all the sins we've done. We don't. And when we look at the letter to Laodicea, this is what we find. That when the Lord Jesus Christ came to analyse them, he said, you are rich and increased in goods and have need of nothing. But I want to tell you that you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. There could not be imagined a worse state. There could not be imagined, brethren and sisters, a worse state. And here obviously are people who number one, don't know themselves, do they? And number two and number three would have to follow after that that they don't know the God they serve and they don't know his son. What an awful state to be in, brothers and sisters. And what's it based on? Do you think God is fair? He says, I'm going to take you to task for what you don't know. Is that fair? If we don't have the utmost confidence, brothers and sisters, in the fairness of the judgments of God that they will be according to truth, we need to rectify our mind very quickly and we need to get God's view of that. You go back into the law in Leviticus and we talk about the sin offering. And every class of Israel is addressed from the high priest to the nation to a leader to the common people, to a poor person, to a very poor person, covering all of the strata of that society and every one of those commitment, uh, those uh, regulations is prefaced by if a soul sin through ignorance. If a soul sin through ignorance. Brothers and sisters, it is one thing to commit a sin of which we are ignorant, it is another sin to have the sin of ignorance. And the sin of ignorance is our greatest enemy today because we don't know. And that's what the Lord Jesus Christ was saying to Laodicea. You don't know. And my view is you are wretched, you are miserable, you are poor. You are blind. You are naked. But they said, we're rich and increased in goods. We don't have any need of anything. We're self-sufficient. We can do it ourselves, thank you very much. We don't need any help. Brethren and sisters, please, please take notice of what God says is his view of sin. Because their view of sin was, like the community in which they lived, it's only sin if it hurts someone else. And covetous doesn't hurt anybody else. It's only sin if you get found out. 
It's only sin if the person against whom you've done something knows you've done something. So that in the case of the man and the woman in Numbers chapter 5, the husband didn't know, he had a suspicion, it's okay. And therefore, brethren and sisters, we need to lift our sights up higher and to see sin as God sees it. We only need to go back and look at what Brother Tony has been talking about in his sessions with us, brothers and sisters, into the garden. What did the man and the woman do? They partook of a tree which God in his wisdom said they shouldn't eat of it. Could we justify that? We would justify that, brothers and sisters, at a hundred miles an hour. And we'd have ourselves... Ex- well, what's wrong? He said it was good for food anyway. What could be wrong with it? And so, brethren and sisters, you can really only judge what God thinks about that by what he did as a result of it. And what did he do? He cursed the man, he cursed the woman, he cursed the serpent... He cursed every beast of the field. He cursed the earth. Do we have that view of sin? We need to get it, brothers and sisters. We need to see that one disobedience is one too many for ever God to have dealings with man. And in the case of our Lord Jesus Christ, one sin, even though we might justify it, is one too many. That's God's view of sin. And we don't have that view. We forget and we excuse ourselves, oh well we're too tired to do this or we've got other things at hand. We can't do that. We forgot to speak to somebody at the meeting. We know they needed something. Maybe we weren't prepared. And all sorts of reasons crowd into our mind as to why we don't do what we know we ought to do. Remember what James finishes with, brothers and sisters, in that chapter that we, have re- that we, re- that we dealt with yesterday? In the last verse of chapter 4, Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Brethren and sisters, Jesus Christ always upheld that. Remember when the scribes and Pharisees wanted to criticise him on Sabbath days for doing something good? And he asked them this question, Is it lawful on the Sabbath days to do good or to do evil? Because he is saying to them, if I do not do good when the opportunity arises, Sabbath day or no, I have done evil. And when we see that, brethren and sisters, when we see the gravity with which God and his Son view sin, we get a view of ourselves that we don't get otherwise. That's why James says, we go and have a look in the mirror and we walk away and we forget what manner of persons we are. Now this jealousy, brothers and sisters, this jealousy of God, 
is the most intense form of love we will ever come under and it's the most intense form of love that we will ever feel. And what James is telling us in the early verses of of chapter 4 when he talks about wars and fightings among us and then he introduces to us the spirit and the attitude of jealousy, he's saying to us, even in contention, jealousy must reign. Even in contention, jealousy must reign. The same spirit has got to be used for this and that. It's got to prevail in our minds, brethren and sisters, And the Apostle Paul was a very good example of that. And he says in the 2nd of Corinthians and at chapter 11. Turn to the 2nd of Corinthians and at chapter 11. And he says at verse 1, because they all thought he was a fool, and he said to them, well, I'd like you to bear with me a little in my folly. And indeed bear with me, because... And we know the characteristics that were prevalent in the Corinthian Ecclesia, brothers and sisters. We know the conditions that were prevalent in that Ecclesia. And the Apostle Paul says in verse 2, I am jealous over you with godly jealousy. For I have espoused you unto one husband. What is this business, he is saying by implication, what is this business of you people, even if it is in the secret dark chambers of your imagery, what is this business of turning aside to another husband? Whether it's open or prominent, or whether it's in the darkest recesses of your mind, he says, I want for you... I want to be able, just as I have made you engaged to a husband through the word I've spoken to you, I want to be able to present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. I don't want for God to hold any suspicion against you of infidelity to his word. And therefore, he would be saying to this ecclesia, he's saying, brethren and sisters and young people, The sin of ignorance has to go. And it's been said before, if we don't want to change, throw the Bible out fast. And we say it, brethren and sisters, likewise to ourselves as to every other individual. If we don't want to change, throw the Bible out fast. You try and plead ignorance to the law, to the policeman, when he comes and books you for speeding. See what he says. He says you should have read the sign a hundred yards back. Try to plead ignorance to Christ, brethren and sisters, when he comes. (coughs) Try to tell him, oh, we, we didn't know what you wanted. That is telling him loud and clear we don't know him. And he can only respond by saying... Depart from me, I never knew thee. It's not a matter, brethren and sisters, that I knew thee a little bit. It's not a matter that I knew you for ten years of your life and then you slipped away. 
he says, I never knew you. That's how serious a matter, brethren and sisters, sin in our life is. And if we are not sensitive to it and if we don't know how God defines it and what it is and the worst forms of it, we will fall into the abyss very, very quickly in the sight of God. And so what does the Apostle Paul go on to say? Verse 3, he says, I've got this fear. I've got this great anxiety because I am worried that by any means, right across the board, I've got to worry about a lot of different ways in which you could be beguiled by the serpent thinking. As Brother Tony said, I am very worried that you could be completely deceived by the sin which is in your members. The serpent become the thinking of the flesh. The word of the serpent become flesh, as Brother Tony expressed it. I am worried that that might happen to you. And it's going to be accomplished through his subtlety. Brethren and sisters, the subtlety is everywhere present. It's not only in our own minds, but it's everywhere out there. And appeals are being made to us day after day after day to fill our minds with what they want to fill our minds. They are not happy that we are different from them. But different, brethren and sisters, means that we are normal and they are deprived. Because what was this brain given to us for? Why was God so careful in the preparation of his words so that they might be engrafted in meekness upon the tablets of our heart, upon the chambers of our imagery. That's why he was so careful about those words. And remember what Samuel said? He didn't want one of the words of Yahweh to fall to the ground. And we have got to be people who do not want one of the words of Yahweh to fall to the ground. We do not want him to have expended any energy on us in vain. And therefore all the work of God in Christ is not going to be in vain for somebody who desires with all their heart and soul to hunger and thirst after righteousness. And that they are prepared to wait through all the vicissitudes of life until we are filled with it. And verse 3 goes on to say that I'm worried that lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety so your minds, your thinking should be corrupted from not the simplicity, brothers and sisters, from the singleness that is in Christ. Because Christ is one like his Father. He thinks in one way. It's not to him yea or nay. It's yea, it's yea, and it's nay, nay. There's no doubt in his mind about anything. We need to learn to think more and more, brothers and sisters and young people, in black and white. 
and don't let anybody convince you that there are shades of grey. Do you think, brethren and sisters, that there are any shades of grey in the mind of the deity in whom is no variableness, neither a shadow cast by turning? There's only one body anywhere we know, brethren and sisters, that has no shadow cast by turning and that's the sun. And Yahweh Elohim is a great sun and a shield to those who rush into his help. And there's no shadow cast by turning in him. And while we may not be able to see in every way what is precisely right and precisely wrong, we can rest assured, brothers and sisters, that there's no doubt in his mind and there's no doubt in his son's mind either. Remember when the Lord Jesus Christ said the time for man to work is in the daytime? And what did he say after that? He said, the night cometh when no man can work. And what did he mean by that? He meant, brothers and sisters, that when he's placed into the grave, there's no more opportunity for work. But all the time before that, all the time before that, he was accountable to his father. All the time before that. So that not only was he sinless, but in his life, brethren and sisters, there was no more room for ever practising one more act of righteousness. There was no more room for any more. Is there any room for any more in our lives? How do we dwindle away the time, the hours of the day, brethren and sisters? And I know, brethren and sisters, that I am greatly at fault in this matter. And if we don't know, we can't do anything about it. If we don't know what God's view is, we cannot do anything about it. And that was the status of the Laodicean Ecclesia. And if we are not the Laodicean Ecclesia, brethren and sisters, who is? And we need, therefore, the more earnestly to take heed unto ourselves and unto the doctrine for in so doing we shall both save ourselves and them that hear us. They are of course the words of the Apostle Paul to Timothy. And now we just go on a little bit further in James chapter 4 and to see the way in which Yahweh operates upon the basis of the parable of the man in Numbers chapter 5. And we read... In verse 5, he says, Do you think that the scripture saith in vain, The spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? You can see that the translators have got a little alternative view. The little number four there occurs just before the word to envy. And the most satisfying translation that I can find, brothers and sisters, that is in harmony with the foregoing is this. With jealousy does God yearn over the spirit that he has caused to dwell in us. And that spirit, brothers and sisters, is the spirit, is the law 
of the spirit <coughs> excuse me of life in Christ it's the law of the spirit of life in Christ it's the spirit of Christ which we don't if we don't have we are none of his and we are seeing therefore that the attitude of God to that is that he is with jealousy hovering over that spirit He does not want to see the dissipation of that spirit. He wants to see it grow and grow and grow and he's prepared to do everything in his power to give us all the power of the gospel which is the power of God unto salvation. He's prepared to dispatch the angels of heaven so that they might encamp around about us and regulate our lives and deliver us from evil. He is prepared, brothers and sisters, to invite us into his confidence to see what he wants to be done in the earth. He's given to us an illustrious son in whom was neither shadow nor nor turning. He's given to us a son, brothers and sisters, who was prepared to lower himself from the very status of his father down to the status of a bond slave. And if the son did that, the father did it as well. And he's prepared to give us all those things Is he going to give them to to us in vain? Is he going to expend all that condescension, brethren and sisters, all that power, all that wisdom, all that love, all that righteousness, is he going to give that to us in vain? Is it come to the day when we're going to come out of the ground as a sprout body and all that will happen, the little plant will shrivel up? He is an excellent gardener, brethren and sisters, and he knows his business. And he knows all the nurture and all the care and all the climatic conditions which are needed for us to grow. And he's given all of those things to us. And he wants to see that the husbandman who labours must be a partaker and a producer of the fruits. In this our present day, so that when his son comes, he will examine the little plant and he will find some thirty, some sixty, and some an hundredfold. And so, brethren and sisters, for a few moments, <coughs> we think about chapter 5. Is that the right time? I think it stopped. Somebody got the time, please, because <laughs> I've got it upside down, haven't I? but only started at 25 bucks. Sorry, John, it's not working. (laughs) I'm sure more than five minutes has gone past since we started. Just before we do that, brothers and sisters, let us just go back to verse 4. We didn't really give verse 4 of chapter 4 the full treatise. And neither are we, of course, giving any of these verses their full desert. But in in verse 4 of chapter 4 where we read Ye adulteresses, ye adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. We need to remember, brethren and sisters, that there really are only two forces in the world. And there is the force of the law of the spirit of life in Christ 
and there is the force of the law of sin and death. And at the head of those two forces, there are two kings, aren't there? There is the Lord Jesus Christ and there is the Diabolos. In another way, it's Christ and Adam. Now, brethren and sisters, remember what the Lord Jesus Christ said about what they would find in him when they hung him on a tree? He said, The prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. They won't find any connection between me and the prince of this world. And what is the prince of this world? It is diabolos. It is a false accuser. And everywhere in the New Testament where you find that word used, you'll find it is a physical thing. It's something that produces a thought. It's not the thought. It's the thing that produces the thought. And therefore, brethren and sisters, if Diabolos is not going to find anything in Christ, he is actually making a separation between everything that is of God and everything that is of man. And therefore, when we get that view, brethren and sisters, and we say, well, look, home in my little community, there's a very good little club that do excellent work And it's called the Lions Club. There's nothing wrong with what the Lions Club do in their civil help around the community. Why can't we join? Why can't we get involved? Well, the reason is, brethren and sisters, not because there's something wrong with what they might do, but because the whole reason why they do it is because they want the praise of men. The whole reason why any community, why any system that is upon the face of this earth is in existence is because they want to do what they want to do. And they want to do what they want to do because they want to get what they want to get. And they get what they want to get. And so they do what they want to do. And there is none of those systems from the papacy to the president to the Prime Minister, to the government of the land, to the state government, to the religious systems that are upon the face of the earth, to the civil organisations in your little community, there is not one of them that does not follow the dictates of Diabolos. There's not one of them. They are all owned by Diabolos. They are all completely run by the thinking of the flesh. And if you go into those communities, brethren and sisters, and you try to promote your ideas, it'll soon tell you that you have no part there. And there's one little phrase in Hebrews chapter 11 when the Apostle Paul is running through that grand congregation of the faithful of Old Testament times. There's one little phrase in there, brethren and sisters, and it's inserted as it were an afterthought. And it helps us to see this in all its truth. And the little phrase to which we refer is, 
of whom the world was not worthy. Of whom the world was not worthy. And all of those faithful people, brothers and sisters, kept right away separate from all of the activities of the communities and the governments and so on of the land. They might have been employed by the government, some of them, and some of them were. But they weren't the government. And so therefore, brothers and sisters, you can see the way in which God has shown to us what he considers to be what he wants us to do and what he considers to be what he does not want us to do. And there is no other authority than him. And when things are of diabolos, brothers and sisters, they really are of diabolos. And even though we may not be able to perceive initially how those things operate, and yes, it is a lovely work for us to do, and it is, do it as hard as you can, but not in the shackles of their organisation. And so therefore, brothers and sisters, when God says there's those and there's us, don't love the things that are in the world, don't love the world, don't go there, love those things that I have presented to you. Love those things only, brothers and sisters, which I know are going to yield the very best results for you. And I'm going to hover over the spirit that I've engendered in you because of his own will begat he us by the word of his truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And brethren and sisters, if we're half there and half there, what's the creature going to be? It's going to be an abortion of a creature. It's not going to be either one or the other. And we cannot serve God and mammon. And so therefore that tells us that it is going to be one or the other, isn't it? And it's going to be the other if we try to weld things together that God says must be, must be set apart. And so, brothers and sisters, as we turn our attention for a couple of moments into James chapter 5, <coughs> we want to look particularly at verse 10. And verse 10 says, Take my brethren, the prophets, who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering, affliction and patience. And we just cast our minds back through some of them. Moses, how would you like to have the experiences of Moses? You just think about some of the things that happened to Moses. Come forward a few hundred years and have a look, brethren and sisters, at Jeremiah. Young people, Jeremiah was told that he was never to be able to have the comforts of marriage. Young man, young woman, would you like to be faced with that commandment? Brother or sister, take Ezekiel the prophet. He was told one night that tomorrow morning when you wake up, Your wife is going to be dead. And don't you dare cry. How would you like to put up with that, brothers and sisters? Have a look at the way in which the faithful of old have been a tremendous example of suffering, affliction and patience. Take Job. How would any one of us like to be Job? There's none of us that have approached anything like the troubles of Job. 
And when we read in James chapter 5, brothers and sisters, about Job, this is what he says. In verse 10 and verse 11, Behold, we count them happy which endure. Ye have heard of the patience of Job and have seen the end of the Lord. That doesn't mean to say, brothers and sisters, that he suddenly jumped from looking at Job to the Lord Jesus Christ and you've seen the end of the Lord Jesus Christ. This actually means, because the word the end is the Greek word teleos again, you can see that what God was doing with Job was that he had an end result in mind. And the end result demanded that Job go through those things and that he suffer them patiently so that he might be an example of suffering affliction and of patience and of an abiding under whatever God had brought upon him. And he was that, wasn't he, brethren and sisters? He was a wonderful, patient example of suffering great affliction. And look at the end that God had with him. He multiplied his children. He multiplied everything he had. It was just like our brother Tony has been saying to get into the kingdom of God. It's a parable of that. It's a parable of the days, brethren and sisters, when our Lord Jesus Christ will return. And how is our Lord Jesus Christ going to return? Well, Brother Tony has introduced us to a picture of what it will be like in the kingdom of God. That we will all grow up as calves of the, of the stall. And as calves of the stall, brothers and sisters, when we are unleashed from the prison house of sin and death, when in that marvellous moment we are all made immortal and incorruptible in the twinkling of an eye, what will it be like? It'll be like calves that are let out of a stall in which they've been housed for quite a considerable amount of time. <coughs> And you'll be able to see the joy. You'll be able to see the power and the glory and the radiance of the body with which they have been clothed. And when we take our minds, brothers and sisters, just back a little bit from that to our own days, the Lord Jesus Christ today, remember what he's doing in the Song of Solomon? Remember the picture that the bride has of him in the Song of Solomon, in one of those wonderful scenes, and she says, the voice of my beloved. Here he comes. And what's he doing? He's skipping upon the mountains. And he's leaping upon the hills. Because, brethren and sisters, even if we don't have it, he does. And he's showing to us an aspect and the depiction of the joy with which he is coming. And our joy has somehow got to, in some way, match the joy that is shown in that vision. He comes skipping upon the mountains and leaping upon the hills and he just goes behind the closet and he goes behind our, our, uh, our lattice and we see him at the window. And Brother Grant is telling us about those things, isn't he, at our lunchtime tables. And our hearts are stirred. And when he finally gets here, brothers and sisters, and when he sees his bride... And this is just one of the most unbelievable, but it's believable, it's an almost unbelievable thing, that he will say to his bride, Thou hast ravished my heart, 
my sister, my spouse. Is that how we feel toward him? Do we really see that he is an altogether lovely one? Can we just even begin to imagine, brethren and sisters, the tears that will fall out of our eyes uncontrollably if he ever says that to us? And if we have taken on board a knowledge, no, not just a knowledge, (coughs) if we have come to know the Father and the Son, we will know two things about them, brothers and sisters. We will know that when they met, there was a fullness of joy that had never been seen in heaven or earth before. And when Yahweh's representative finally meets his bride, there will be a joy on earth that has never ever been seen before. It cannot even barely be contemplated by us, brothers and sisters. To see the way that the Lord Jesus Christ a total manifestation of his Father in the days of his flesh and in the days of his exalted spirit nature so that he can pass it on to others as the tree of life and that we might partake of him and become immortal and incorruptible and the joy that will follow as a result of that meeting will be very wonderfully outworked through the words that we read in the Song of Solomon. Thou hast ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse, with one turn of thy head and with one look at thy locks. Brothers and sisters, what will be the beauty? What will be the beauty? The beauty will be but one thing. The beauty will be that he will look into a mind that thinks exactly like his. And the earnest business of the day is to let this mind be in us. Because if this mind is in us, what comes out of here will be what he wants to hear and what is done by these and what is done by the other external organs of the body, brothers and sisters, will be controlled because we have learned to build a mind like his and it will give us the power to speak like him. It will give us the energy to act like him and it will finally be clothed upon with a house which is from heaven, which, brethren and sisters, will be a glory that will never fade away.